Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 201 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Uh, Matt is out on other business today, so my man, Nick Whitaker, our Director of Research and Trading, is once again filling in for Matt. So Nick, welcome back to the show. Always good to be here. Always, always good to have you. So excited to see uh, what you're going to bring to the table today. But before we get into that, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 17th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index down 0.3% for the month and up 8.3% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 2% for the month and up 0.8% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 2.2% for the month and up 19.4% for the year. The iShares uh, Russell 2000 Small Cap ETF is up 0.5% for the month and up 1% for the year. The Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 0.2% for the month but up 8.5% for the year. Three-month Treasury rate sitting at 5.26%, the two-year Treasury rate at 4.12%, and the 10-year Treasury rate at 3.57%. Moving into big headlines, current events from the past week, Nick, a little bit of Fed speak. So uh, both Atlanta Fed Reserve President uh, Bostic uh, and Chicago Fed President Goolsby Uh, suggested to CNBC uh, earlier this week that it is, quote-unquote, prudent now to take a wait-and-see stance on interest rate policy. Uh, Mr. Bostic added also that rate cuts are not part of his baseline forecast. So um, there's a lot of different people out there, Nick, talking about what rates are going to do over the next 6 to 12 months. A lot of people think that the Fed is going to pause and then cut before the end of the year. A lot of people think the Fed's just going to pause and not cut. And then there's people out there that think that the Fed could possibly raise again uh, at their next meeting or at some point later this year. So uh, I think there's a lot of mixed speak and mixed headlines about this going on. Again, this is why I am not a fan of forecasts. Uh, because really anything can happen. And I'll talk about a few separate things later in this podcast that is hard data maybe that we can follow to give us a direction on where interest rates are going to go over the next 6 to 12 months rather than just listening to Fed presidents and news headlines. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what happens with rates, obviously, over the next several months. Yeah. Um, that ceiling chatter. So there uh, was... Not shockingly, no agreement to raise the debt ceiling at Tuesday's meeting between President Biden and congressional leaders. Uh, yeah. Nonetheless, the the media spin coming out of that meeting is that it was a positive meeting. So, uh, again, I, I don't think it's 
anything right now, uh, Nick, but obviously it could turn into something. We've seen the market sell off on uh, debt ceiling uh, fears and, and not being able to raise the debt ceiling in the past. So it wouldn't surprise me if we got that at some point in time. Um, but I, you know, it, it's never smart to position portfolios based on uh, what ifs. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Like a, a what if where both parties really want the same thing. Right. Everyone wants to raise the debt ceiling. It's just a little bit of the political maneuvering. Right. So. Right. It's, we'll, give we'll a see little bit happens. of this. Take a little bit yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Which I understand, especially when you look at the history of the debt ceiling. I was reading a little bit about that yesterday, but um, you still have a couple weeks before before this starts getting really you know, crunch time. So we'll, we'll see, see what happens. Yep. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, Nick, the first thing I had was a tweet from Liz Young on May 11th. And Jenna will put this uh, chart up for the YouTube viewers and also on our show notes. Uh, but Liz tweeted, the copper gold ratio on a new cycle low. History suggests the 10-year yield could fall. So if you look at this chart, Nick, um, the line in blue is the copper uh, relative to gold ratio. And then the red line is the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. And what you can see pretty clearly on this chart is that the copper gold ratio tends to lead uh, the 10-year yield in terms of direction. So if copper and gold is going up, uh, the 10-year yield usually follows that and is just delayed by a couple of months. And it's the same thing on the downside. So if the copper-gold ratio is falling, uh, the 10-year yield lags a little bit behind. But typically what you see is eventually the 10-year yield follows suit uh, of whatever the copper-gold ratio is doing just by a couple of months. Um, so when I was talking a few moments ago about not necessarily listening to to news headlines or to what Fed presidents are saying and looking at the data that we have, this is just one piece of data that to me, that we can possibly see rates come in over the next several months. What I also think is really interesting about this, car, this chart, Nick, and specifically the copper gold ratio, this is kind of another risk on risk off metric that we follow, at least for the broader economy. So. Uh, copper is a much more uh, aggressive commodity than gold is. So when mm -hmm. this ratio, the copper-gold ratio, is going up, that usually means the economy is in a pretty good place. We're in a risk-on environment for risk-on assets. And then on a contra to that, when this ratio is going down, that means that gold is outperforming copper and gold is a more quote-unquote, defensive commodity, safe, right? Safe haven commodity, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the economy is struggling when there's talk about, you know, the U.S. dollar not being the reserve currency of the world, you would suggest, or you would, one would think that gold would, would begin to outperform, and gold has uh, outperformed so far this year. So uh, we're starting to see a breakdown a little bit here in this ratio, which signals to me that we could be in for more negative economic data. We could be in for tougher times over the next 6, 12, 18 months for the economy um, because, again, this, this copper-gold ratio usually does a pretty good job of indicating where the economy is going to be several months down the road. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's a good chart. I like it. Um, so uh, one one data point that suggests that the ten year yield uh, could potentially fall. Um, I'll actually skip Nick to my number three that I had because this also has to do with interest rates. So this was a tweet uh, from John Roke on May third, and Jenna will also put this up uh, in the show notes and on the YouTube video. Uh, but John tweeted, "Yo, charts all." Uh, what is it, what he's showing is all of the U.S. Treasury yields in addition to the Fed funds yield. So he says, yo, charts, the Fed funds rate is now greater than the entire, uh, the entire curve, uh, the entire curve. Yeah, sorry, my screen just blacked out on me. Uh, Fed funds yield is now greater than the entire curve. Uh, this is just more confirmation that yields have topped comes next ain't likely to be pretty. And what you can see on this chart is that the Fed funds rate is now greater, obviously, than all of the U.S. Treasury yields. And typically, Nick, when that happens, and I say typically for a reason, um, you've seen the end of a interest rate hike cycle and you start to see yields that come down. So what does that yeah. mean? Yields come down, bond prices go up. Um, typically, uh, a tailwind for stocks in the long term. Um, so we'll have to wait and see if, if this time is different. I would go on a, out on a limb and say probably not, but I do yeah. think with all of this data that we're seeing that rates will come in at some point. And it might not be that the Fed cuts at some point this year, but they just pause and naturally the market is going to bring rates down. Um, especially if the economy continues to weaken, I think you're going to see more investors pile into bonds, which is going to drive yields down. Um, so uh, I just wanted to provide some data with all of the headlines out there about the Federal Reserve and interest rates and what they may or may not do. I prefer to look at the data, what's happened in the past and what has happened in the past, according to this chart, is that um, when the Fed funds rate gets above all of the U.S. Treasury yields, uh, typically a pretty good signal that yields are at least going to yeah. flatline or, or fall from there. But we've peaked. Yeah, it makes sense, too, right, um, in the context of history. The one thing that kind of has my curiosity looking at this chart and even on the, the copper gold chart that you showed previously, which was focused on the 10-year yield, uh, and then if you reference that where the yield yield curve is now, obviously pretty high on the short end, the five uh, five point two on three months and and tears down pretty aggressively from there. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of consolidates, how quickly does that does the curve shift and 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 flatten out as the market gets a little bit of a better understanding of what the Fed's policy truly is going to be. Um, and going back to the headlines that you mentioned, and, and some of the Fed speak that we've had, the market really wants to hear about rate cuts and the market wants to know when and the sooner the better. And no one really knows. Uh, the Fed doesn't even know when they're going to cut rates. The Fed knows that they need to make sure inflation continues to come down and inflation has moderated, of course. Um, but it, it's it's pretty clear that the Fed's going to stay in a, in a wait and see in a wait and see policy stance for at least a couple weeks, maybe even a couple months, and and we'll go from there. But um, yeah, I think 
everyone's pretty comfortable with all right we're starting to peak out on yields and and the rate cycle and these charts are are, are perfect evidence to that it just gets down to when are we going to cut rates and when can when when will this curve start to consolidate and then get back into a more traditional um, a traditional yield curve, which is uh, no longer inverse. So I, I actually have no idea on, on a timeline of that. I don't know if you have any uh, any thoughts um, on. A no, I don't. Timeline. Usually, you know, there's, you know, we've done research on this several times before. Where, you know, how long does it take for a yield curve usually to uninvert, and you know, what's the forecast of that timeline for when a recession hits and when the market falls? Um, you know, what we do know, Nick, is that. You know, I think I, I might have shared this on a previous podcast or in one of our market updates to clients is that when the yield curve uninverts itself, so we get back to a point where the longer dated uh, maturities for U.S. Treasury bonds are yielding more than the shorter dated Treasury bonds or bills, um, typically when that curve uninverts, that's just the start of the pain for stocks. Um, so if anyone just pulls up a chart of the S&P 500 and you throw on there, like on stockcharts.com or on Google, you can throw on there the 10 two-year U.S. Treasury uh, yield curve. And typically when it uninverts, or at least in the early 2000s and then in 2008, that's when stocks began to fall the most. Um, but the, the key thing there, Nick, is that we may be in an inverted yield curve environment for another year. For a lot so longer, I, right, yeah. So it I don't, could stay for six months. It could stay for, yeah, 18, 24 months. Yeah, so it, yeah. It's, there is really no silver bullet to indicate the timing on that. Um, but I think it is prudent that once the yield curve does uninvert and gets back to normalcy, I think it, it makes sense for investors to kind of pause and, and take status on where we are at that point in time. Yeah. Because again, just looking back at history, stocks have typically fallen when that happens. And we're not really even close to that right now, um, but it is something to watch for the rest of the year. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like we're close to it. That's why I was saying, yeah, who who knows? I, it would it would shock me if we got back to normal this year. Yeah, it, it would, that would too. shock me. Me too. Personally, but um, right, we've seen crazier things, but it was, we have. Yeah, we have. Not on my would, bingo card would, for this year. Yeah, yeah. Same. <laughs> um, the last thing I had, Nick, uh, was kind of another fun one. Um, have Jenna throw this up on the YouTube video. It's a magazine cover from the May Economist edition. And it is uh, on the front page, uh, it's a red cover page, and it says peak China question mark, and it has a gold dragon on the front of it, kind of like a stock chart going up and from the left yeah. to the upper right. Yeah, um, the, the, the dragon is plateauing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is, you know, the economist throwing out there, hey, you know, is, is China about to be in for tough times in terms of their economy, in terms of their stock market? And I just thought that this was interesting because The Economist is known for being pretty good for uh, contrarian investors. So if investors did the opposite of what the cover page was or going long or short, whatever the, the cover page was of The Economist has turned out to be pretty good. Um, and what I was pulling up 
Nick, just before we hopped on was that edition was, it looks like it was on May 13th. And I know this is still a very short period of time, right? But since May 13th, when this edition came out, um, the iShares China large cap ETF uh, up almost two and a half percent. Alibaba up almost six and a half percent. JD.com up almost six percent. Uh, Pinduoduo up almost five percent. Uh, this is not a recommendation for or against those names, but I just thought it was curious. Or I was curious to pull up the returns of Chinese companies, larger Chinese companies since this edition of The Economist come out. And I'm more interested to see what happens over the next several months uh, to see if The Economist once again uh, hit the bottom on on whatever they're putting on their, their magazine indicator. So just thought this was interesting. I don't think people should be scared of China uh, in terms of being investable right now. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, and for, for listeners, this isn't just something that you know, we at Jessup Wealth Management have have found, and I know this right. is not our proprietary uh, observation. This is well documented across. I think Bespoke. I think seen Bespoke talk about it, and uh, or maybe not Bespoke, but another main research outlet that that we follow has pointed this out and proved it with data points where they've taken a bunch of historical economist uh, topics and shown what the pricing pricing is afterwards which is so it's quite interesting it is very Um, interesting yeah it kind of makes sense too i mean not to and we're not we're not trying to to uh as the kids would say throw shade at the economist by any means simply observation and it, it makes sense because of and and uh listeners hear me say this all the time that the market is forward looking and these are investigative journalists and so they're mm-hmm. way deep in the weeds and they're looking at history and they're looking at everything and detailed account of what's been happening in the months prior to the release of this. And then it gets released and the market's already six months down the road, right? The market's right. looking ahead. So it, from that perspective, these, these type of uh, headlines make sense to me. Um, yeah. And again, time. just to be very clear, I'm not screaming, telling people to go out and buy China and Chinese stocks. I'm not saying that at all. Um, yeah. Just pointing it out there that, you know, it, it's just an interesting data point for me yeah. uh, if, if yeah. everyone's kind of bearish on, on Chinese stocks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's still risks associated with all investing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and out, of, out of any any country, maybe other than Russia, you know, your ears got to be perked up whenever you're you know, looking at investing in China, obviously, for reasons I'm not going to get into today, but absolutely, um, yeah. yeah, doesn't mean it doesn't mean it doesn't belong in people's portfolios. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I have is an update on the BOFA fund manager survey. It's a tweet from my man, Jonathan Farrow. Love Jonathan Farrow. He's a Big top Jonathan anchor so yeah, Bofa think, for people are uh, that's Bank of America. Oh yeah, sorry, throwing some jargon in there for listeners. My apologies. Um, we've talked about this numerous times on the podcast. It's just a it's a survey that Bank of America sends out to money managers, ranging from major institutional investors to small hedge funds um, and everyone in between. It covers a lot of assets under management. Um, I, I like billions of dollars of asset center management. 
Um, and Jonathan's tweet was as follows. He just he cut a little um, chart out of the out of the survey, and he said, "Bofa Bank of America fund manager surveys most crowded trades: long big tech thirty two percent, short banks twenty two percent, and short U.S. dollar sixteen percent." And then the chart is uh, percentage of overweight banks minus percentage of overweight and tech. And um, the, I, I picked this out and then I have another piece of research that, that kind of uh, goes along with this, um, which I find very interesting. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts here for, for listeners? So just to clarify for listeners, Nick, this is showing as of right now, uh, most investors or a lot of investors are, you know, long the big tech names and short banks. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. And short and short the U.S. dollar. So it's just interesting to see how, you know, larger institutional money managers are, are positioned, Nick. Um, I will say if, you know, the contrarian comes out in terms of the U.S. dollar. I think that that could cause some more pain for stocks because over the last year and a half, two years, the U.S. dollar has almost almost had a, a perfectly uh, negative correlation with with stocks. So I think that that could be an issue. I'm not surprised that people are short banks because of what happened in the regional banking sector, and that really hasn't continued to get any better other than a you know a short short-lasted kind of jump up in the KRE uh, ETF, which I think you're going to talk about here a little bit. It's a regional banking ETF that's, you know, gotten some short-term strong performance, but it was so oversold that at some point that that bounce was going to come. But I still am in the camp that I don't think the regional banking problems are finished yet. I still think you're going to see some issues over the next couple of months and potentially for the rest of the year. Um, but what is what has been the outperformers this year, Nick? Big tech, Na- mega cap, big tech, tech right? Nasdaq. Um, we talked about that last uh, last week too, with some yeah, of the outperformance exactly. and the the mega cap names. Yeah, so it doesn't. I, I guess my comment to you, my response is, I'm not surprised to see this data, um, and we'll have to see if you know this continues to. Uh, you know, these are the names that continue to outperform for the rest of the year, but the strength has been in, in large cap tech. So uh, not surprised that a lot of people are invested in those areas right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense when you and and most things do when you look at when you when you start to look at the uh, the pricing action, especially with the fund manager survey. When I saw those crowded trades, it's like, OK, that makes a lot of sense to take us into to my next uh, piece of research. This is from Brian Lund. Uh, it's a tweet from yesterday, uh, and he says the KRE, which is the uh, uh, S&P regional banking ETF that you just mentioned, the KRE chart needs a lot of work, but price action is making a compelling case that the low was put in on May 4th. And I saw this chart and this tweet pop up across a couple of our of, of our research houses that we follow. Um, which is which is interesting in context of the most crowded trade being short regional banks and obviously regional uh, this this ETF has really been pulled down by of course some of these major regional banks that have that have fallen and 
with a crowded short trade at that level, you see the bounce down there, I guess, what does that say, 36 around there. Um, some, some nice strong support and a little bit of a bounce there. It could be interesting to, to see if we get a little bit more chop, chop there. And then mm -hmm. to see this crowded trade on unwind, because if this were to continue to chop, let's say just chop sideways for the next six months, those short numbers will have to come down because um, of margin calls. And if you're, if you're, and unless they just want to hold on and wait, um, but I would imagine that'd be pretty unlikely. And I mean, even earlier this week, Jamie Dimon came out and he said, you know, I know there's a lot of a lot of uh, short selling going on in the regional banks. He's basically saying it's not as bad as it seems. And I think he said something along the lines that he wishes the SEC would look into some of the short sellers because some of the short selling in the in the banking uh, um, environment is putting excess pressure on on this part of the market. So it's very difficult whenever you have a, a, a sector that has such negative sentiment around it where you've got all the short guys in one spot. Um, that can really put an overhang on on a stock, on a sector. Uh, and in this case, uh, or subsector, I should say, in this case, there's there's a lot of negative sentiment for good reason. And we mentioned this a couple months ago that this banking, I don't want to call it a crisis, but this banking situation is going to take a while to to work out. And um, we'll see. Maybe Maybe we've hit the bottom. Maybe we haven't. Um, but a but an interesting chart, nonetheless. Yeah, I lo I, lo I love it, Nick. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a big technical guy, so you're you're after my own heart with this with this chart. But a couple of of observations for me is, you know, once the regional banks fell apart in March, there are a lot of people out there saying this is overblown. The regional banks are screaming buy right now. Their valuations yep. are extremely cheap. And it's like, okay, so, you know, you look at this chart and let's say you buy regional banks at the end of March and they continued to kind of just chop sideways before they broke down. So, you know, KRE went from 44 to 35 in pretty short order. So it's like, you know, that's a reason why I don't like catching falling knives. But then on the opposite side of this, Nick, is, you know, this rectangular box that uh, Brian has drawn in this chart uh, kind of represents resistance now, uh, in my opinion, at like the 41 level. So oh, yeah. Big um, time. I think you're going to see probably price run up to the 41 level and test that. And uh, that's going to be very telling what it does from that point. If it gets rejected and the trend continues lower or if it bursts through it, um, I think you can see regional banks outperform over the next couple of months because mm -hmm. from what I know and the research I've done, at least with technicals, is you know if you get a a false breakdown like in this chart, right? So, you know, KRE broke down below 41, but if it can reclaim 41 in pretty short order, uh, one of my favorite sayings in, in the technical markets is from false moves come fast moves. So I think mm. KRE could experience a nice little run if it gets through that 41 level in yeah. pretty short order. Um, but we just, we don't know until it gets there and, and tests that area. But I, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't think the, the problems are done yet with this. Um, so I would just encourage people to be careful, use proper yeah. risk management, size positions appropriately, if this is something you want to get into. 
Yeah, absolutely. Always use proper risk management, always, and, and diversification. It's, uh, investing is, is about hitting singles, right? Not, uh, not, not, not home runs. So. Not a home run. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I Personally, I, I would expect to chop from here. Yes. Yeah. space let's ch- chop in between 41 and 30 34 maybe even a tighter range um with with such a crowded trade and you know there's not every not every regional bank is is struggling as as much as this this etf would indicate um which is one of the reasons i say that so we'll see we'll see it'll be it's always always interesting to watch these narratives uh, in the market and speaking of narratives, uh, I'll take me into my uh, final research piece here, which is a tweet from FactSet. See what you and, did there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's about the uh, the inflation narrative shifting, and uh, there's a chart that we'll throw up here. Um, the uh, the line is as follows: 278 S&P 500 companies have cited inflation on earnings calls for Q1 of 23, which is the lowest number since Q2 of 21. Um, that number was 222. And one of the reasons I I wanted to throw this chart up is uh, as a reminder for listeners that. The market always has a, a few major narratives, always. There will always be a few major narratives going on in the market. Inflation, of course, was was one of those narratives. Flashback a couple years ago, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, think about supply chain, right? Supply chain was a major narrative. And I love these, these data points that FactSet um, puts together where they'll actually, you know, they have a transcription service, so they'll transcribe the calls, it'll go into their research, and then they... They will count the amount of times that a word is mentioned, supply chain is mentioned, or in this case, inflation is mentioned. And you can see those those narratives start to bubble just based on these types of charts. And so you see that, obviously, and and I'm not saying that the, the narratives are a bad thing. I mean, whenever everyone's talking about inflation and these this big peak of 415, 416, we want to hear about it. Um, I bring this up to listeners to remind them that, hey, this narrative is starting to shift. We're starting to focus on other items, like when is the rate the, the rate cycle going to to pause and come down? You're going to hear uh, that, that narrative is shifting away from inflation, and you can just see that in the amount of times it's it's referenced in earnings calls. Um, we're, there's still some some room to run, and you'll see you'll still see this. And, and the news and in conversation, particularly if we have any kind of spike in inflation data over the next couple of months. I'm not anticipating that, but um, inflation's been moderating pretty decently. Um, and as long as that continues, you'll see this go back to, to normal and this will this will uh, be mentioned less and less. So I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that. No, the only thing I'll say is I think, you know, for a, a very long or what seemed like a very long time, inflation was kind of the only thing that mattered. And, you know, I think this chart shows that pretty clearly, but maybe we're getting to the point where it's not mattering as much anymore, which is mm-hmm. a good thing, which I think is going to be welcomed by by most investors. So, yeah, good yeah. point. Most investors and most consumers too, right? This mm-hmm. this hits everyone. Uh, this hits everyone similarly, right? Uh, at the at the pumps and the wallets, and personal yeah. budgeting, all of that stuff. So it's good to see the data. Obviously, the data has been moderating, but whenever whenever Wall Street and and 
and corporate earnings, you start to see these narratives shift out. To me, as both a consumer and an investor, it makes me, okay, that's great. I feel good about that. We're moving on. What's the next thing we're going to move on to? Of course, they're going to move on to something else, but uh, it's nice to see some of this stuff alleviate. Um, this is something that particularly has put stress on, on a lot of people for multiple reasons. So it's good to see this um, chart come down a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, moving on to our financial planning topic of the week, Nick. Uh, this was an article from PlanCorp on April twelfth, titled "How to Build Generational Wealth." So, uh, this is a really good article. Uh, as always, uh, I would encourage people to check this out. Um, Jenna will put this in our show notes. Uh, the link to the article, if people want to read it. Um, so they talk about building generational wealth and they start off by saying, as opposed to managing finances to achieve personal goals like home ownership, retirement, or travel, generational wealth refers to financial assets you grow beyond personal needs in order to transfer from generation to generation. Transferring this wealth from generation to generation can be complicated. Your challenge will be to ensure that you can achieve your personal goals as well as transfer wealth in a manner that is appropriate for your children or grandchildren. They say there's many tools you can use to share wealth from generation to generation, including education savings accounts. An education savings account is a tool you use to pay for post-secondary expenses of a future generation. Most Americans struggle with the cost of college and must take out student loans to afford a college degree. These loans can rise to five or six figures and act as an unfortunate anchor on starting their own financial plan. Properly funding an education savings account can reduce your tax burden today while helping a future generation get their college education. Second is obviously investing, and investing is a key component of every financial plan, but particularly important when building generational wealth because those dollars are planned to grow for decades. As you can imagine, this isn't as simple as picking an index fund and hoping for the best. You should work with a professional to match asset allocation for your near, long, and generational term goals. The third is family life insurance. You don't want to be best laid generational wealth building plans to be uh, usurped, excuse me, by an unfortunate event. All families need life insurance to protect their income in the event of an unexpected death, particularly when you're thinking ahead to the legacy you want to leave. Many life insurance policies can protect your family and even help solidify wealth building strategies so the unexpected doesn't become an ongoing financial burden for those left behind. However, picking the life insurance policy that fits your needs can be complicated, particularly when you have a broad range of assets and goals. So partnering with a professional who can help incorporate your life insurance policy to your financial plan is highly recommended. And again, we're not big insurance people, Nick, but we do realize when people are underinsured what the ramifications can be of that if mm -hmm. they don't insure their income or their assets, God forbid something happened to them. So obviously yep. we will point that out if we feel it is necessary. Um, and, and we f usually find, and I think we've said this on the podcast before, that people are either either really underinsured or really overinsured. Over yeah. um, so we'll recommend if people have too much insurance, we'll even if the situation is right, say, hey, we don't really think you need this insurance anymore, depending on your situation. But mm -hmm. um, I know it's 
typically been something that has been, you know, salesy in our industry. It shouldn't be like that. It's just there to protect assets and income. So I don't want people to be scared by that. Yeah. Um, some other things that they recommend is uh, setting up a family trust. So a family trust can ensure the proper management of wealth by a professional after the older generation passes on. By setting up a family trust, you can reduce taxes and ensure that wealth is distributed to the next generation once they are mature enough to receive it. Uh, and last but not least, Nick, uh, as we talk about all the time with our clients, is prepare an estate plan. So an estate plan is a comprehensive document that describes what happens to your financial assets and family members, including making medical decisions and raising your children after your death if they are under 18. It is a comprehensive piece of planning that deals with financial assets and the most personal decisions you can make. Keep in mind that an estate plan differs from a will or a trust. A will is a document that outlines the specific distribution of your bank accounts, investment portfolio, retirement accounts, real estate, and personal possessions. A trust is a financial mechanism that distributes money as future generations age. Both are key components of an estate plan and must be considered alongside education savings accounts, life insurance, investment accounts, etc. Two other pieces that I want to throw in there, Nick. Uh, our power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney, or a durable and a durable or financial power of attorney, just allows someone else to make healthcare or financial decisions for you if you are unable to do so for yourself anymore. So um, we we hound on this with all of our clients, Nick. Uh, I hound on it on the podcast, but uh, regardless of how many assets you have what your income is uh estate plans are very very important especially if you have people that are financially dependent on you so um i just touched on a couple of things there but a really good article from plan corp so definitely encourage people to read that whole article yep it's not fun stuff to 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 think about for not fun but it's necessary right it's very necessary and very important yeah yeah so uh before we sign off nick anything else you want to leave listeners with no no i hope everyone has a nice nice week and a nice weekend weather's starting to get nice around here so i hope hope everyone's uh enjoys enjoys spring yeah absolutely and i i apologize if there was some noise in the background i'm visiting some family uh this weekend and seems like someone wanted to start hammering uh, right when we started the podcast. So apologies for any audio disruptions. Um, but other than that, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for the week. Like Nick said, enjoy the weather, enjoy your weekend, um, and we will see you back with episode number 202 next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of 
of the independent advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.